If you'll open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, we'll be in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, as Pastor Bruce continues into the series in the book of James. If you're in need of a Bible, please feel free to use the Pew Bible located in front of you. You can find today's reading on page 1199. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, and I'll be reading through verse 8. Follow along as I read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Father, we come. Father, and as we just sang, we cry out that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, Lord, we bow our hearts, we bow our posture to you, Lord, before this time of Pastor Bruce bringing your word. Lord, no matter what we have done this week, no matter where we have been, no matter where we are in life, Lord, speak to us this morning. We want to hear from you. Use Pastor Bruce as your vessel. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. It matters not who you are this morning. It makes no difference if you are single or married, whether you are young or old, or if you're rich or poor, you will face the trials of life. And when you do, there will be a moment when your life will become a mystery, if we can say it that way, that you just can't solve. There may already be for you moments where you can't quite figure out what God is doing in your life in the midst of that trial. You don't understand why God has brought that specific trial into your life. And in your lack of understanding, you now cannot quite figure out what God is doing. You can't quite figure out what you are supposed to do. And so you do the only thing you really know to do, and that is to hold tightly onto the things that you know are true. But when you wake up in the morning, you wake up with a, a knot in the pit of your stomach. And you you think to yourself, I can't believe I'm facing the trial that I'm facing. And since trials and confusion often tend to reside under the same roof, you start asking questions you never thought you would ask. You start wondering about things that you thought you were so sure of before that trial began. Well, if you're in the midst of that particular experience right now, or if you want to be prepared for that experience when it comes to your life, then what James has to say about the trials of life is just for you. But we need to acknowledge something right off the bat here. We need to acknowledge that there is a problem that we all have when it comes to the trials of life. And that problem is this. Trials drive us beyond the, the normal range of our inside and our wisdom. 
In fact, trials oftentimes reduce us to fools in our thinking and decision-making. That's our problem in the trials of life. In fact, trials are, are actually meant to drive you beyond you. That's what God is seeking to do in your life. And God is, is using that particular trial to drive you beyond yourself, to drive you beyond the normal range of your own strength, of your own wisdom and understanding. And hopefully, as God does that, you will reach out to God. You will cry out to God for his help. That's what God intends to do in your life in the midst of trials. And so that trial that you're facing is meant to drive you from self-reliance to now God-reliance. All of us think, or at least most people do, we tend to think that we are wiser than we actually are. We tend to think that we are stronger than we actually are. As, as Paul Tripp put it, listen, your weakness does not keep you from the Lord. It's the delusions of your strength that keep you from the Lord. And so when James here says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should, we should all here be raising our hand and say, that's me, that's me, when he states that. So, so right off the bat, do not think of the person sitting next to you this morning. Don't think of your spouse. Don't think of your teenager or even your friend. Don't think of the person that just made a dumb decision in their own trial. You need to think, all of us here, thank me. Thank me. Thank you. Because one of the things that a trial will do to every one of us here this morning is trials will reduce us to fools in our own thinking and in our own decision-making. In fact, most of us have probably seen this play out in other people's lives when they've gone through a trial. And perhaps there are a few of you here who can actually look back on your own life and you can see how this has also played out in your own life. Have you ever noticed how we can, we can share biblical wisdom with a friend who's facing a trial? We can even open up God's word and we can share with them verses that apply to that trial. Here's what to do. Here's what not to do. Here's what God is doing in your life. And we can give them biblical wisdom, biblical counseling, in their trial, and yet when we're facing the exact same trial, we are reduced to a fool in our own thinking and decision-making. So much so that we will begin to justify how God's word does not apply to me in my situation now. And in that moment, what happens is we begin to treasure our happiness way more than we treasure the good that God wants to accomplish in our lives through the trial we're facing. Instead of persevering through the trial, we will now run from the trial. We will, in process, by running from it, what happens is we actually forfeit the good that God wants to accomplish in our lives through steadfastness in that trial. And since this is our problem, and by the way, it's my problem, it's your problem, this is all of our problem in the midst of trials, then that means we all here this morning, we have a great need within our lives, within our trials, and here it is. We now desperately need wisdom from God 
to persevere in trials until his good purpose is accomplished in our lives. And guess what James says here in verse 5? Well, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so what a wonderful, beautiful gift we have from God the Father here. In the face of our foolishness in trials, we now have a God who gives us wisdom for those trials. Now remember what we learned last Sunday about the trials of life. We, we stated this way, that the overarching theme of what James is talking about here, beginning in verse 2, and it doesn't end until verse uh, 18 or 19, I can't remember which one, but the whole theme, the whole section is about trials. And what we're saying here, what James is teaching us, that God is sovereign over our trials, and God intends to use our trials for our good in his glory. You say, well, what is that good? We learned last Sunday, that good is to make us spiritually mature. This is why James now writes in verse 2, count it all joy. Not that we count the trial in and itself as joyful, but we count it joy because of what that trial is accomplishing in our lives. And that's where he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, and this is what we are supposed to know, knowing this is the key to our steadfastness, perseverance. For you know that this testing, our faith is being tested in the trial, it produces steadfastness. And let this steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That it may, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then notice what happens immediately in verse 5. At the end of verse 4, James says, lacking in nothing. And immediately, James says in verse 5, if any of you lacks, specifically, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And so what James is doing, he takes this word lacking at the very end of verse 4, and he now ties it to verse 5. And what he's doing is he's reminding us here that we need wisdom. But we lack wisdom. We don't have it. We lack wisdom within our trials. And now James says, so ask God for it. And we need to understand that James is talking about wisdom here that enables us to persevere in trials, to remain steadfast in trials until God's good purpose is accomplished in our life. That's the kind of wisdom he's talking about. So this is not wisdom on how to get out from under our trials. This is not wisdom on how to escape our trials. Listen, if you go to God in prayer, God, give me wisdom how to get rid of this trial. Listen, God is not going to answer that prayer in your life. He's not going to. You're going to hear silence from him on that. So this is not wisdom. We are not asking wisdom on how to escape a trial, how to get under a trial, how to avoid trials. None of that. Rather, this is wisdom about how to endure trials so that we can therefore count them as all joy because we know what God is doing. He is accomplishing something good in my life. And so while when trials come, listen, all of us here, we are all prone to ask, why is this happening to me? There isn't anybody here that doesn't ask that question the moment a trial enters their life. Why, God? Why is this happening to me? And it's almost always that's the wrong question to ask, even though we all ask it. The better question to ask is, how, God, how can I remain steadfast in this trials so that your good purpose can be accomplished in my life? 
God, how can I remain steadfast? I need your wisdom on how to do that. I need your wisdom, Lord, on how to stay under this trial, to persevere in this trial, to endure this trial, to obey your commands, to honor you with my life in the midst of this trial. I need your wisdom to do that because all the wisdom I have is so much of the world's wisdom, which doesn't tell me that. The world's wisdom tells me to get out from that trial. The world's wisdom counsels me on how to run from that trial, especially when I treasure my happiness way more than the good that God wants to accomplish in my life. Ask anybody if you have a problem in a marriage. Ask your coworkers. I'm not happy in my marriage. Well, your happiness is what matters most. So just divorce. Leave the marriage because that's what matters most. That's the wisdom of our culture. That is not God's wisdom, though, for our marriages. That's just one little example of you see God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom here. So what we need to do, we need to, first of all, admit we have a problem in the midst of trials. We are oftentimes reduced to fools in our own thinking and decision-making in the middle of trials. Therefore, that means we have this great need for wisdom, specifically God's wisdom. So let's unpack that. Let's see what James says about getting wisdom for the trials of life so that we stay under them and not run out from under them. Number one, ask God for the wisdom you need. Ask God for the wisdom you need. Now, the implication here in verse 5 is very clear. We're lacking something. And that something is wisdom which is something we desperately need when we are facing trials. And so James gives us an imperative here in verse 5. In other words, he gives us a command in verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That's the command. That's the imperative. This is what we are commanded to do when we lack wisdom. Ask God for the wisdom you need. Which makes me think, wow. That means the trials of life are gigantic opportunities to become wise. Do you realize that? The trials of life, the trial you're in right now, is a gigantic opportunity for you to become wise if you will ask God for the wisdom you need. Now, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is far more than knowledge. It requires knowledge. But it's way more than knowledge. Listen, we can have all the knowledge in the world and not be wise. You can be an educated fool. Let me tell you, our world is filled with educated fools. We live in the most educated generation that has ever lived. We also live in the most foolish generation that has ever lived. We have knowledge, but we do not have wisdom as Brett McCracken writes in his new book, The Wisdom Pyramid, he says, our world has more and more information, but less and less wisdom. Kent Hughes, he writes in his commentary on the book of James, the fact is, man, through his vast accumulation of knowledge, has learned to travel faster than the sound, but displays his need of wisdom by going faster and faster in the wrong direction. That's our world for us. And so wisdom, therefore, in in distinction to knowledge, listen, it's understanding for living. And for Christ followers here, listen, biblical wisdom is, is, is understanding for living that enables us 
to obey God and to honor God with our lives, specifically in the midst of a trial. In other words, wisdom is the application of God's truth. It's the application of God's biblical truth to our lives. We might state it this way in your notes. Wisdom is looking at life from God's perspective. Where do we get God's perspective of life? In his word, in the scriptures, in the Bible that you are holding in your hands, whether it's a paper version or a digital version of it. We get God's perspective of life from his word. And wisdom is now looking at life from his perspective and then responding to life in light of God's perspective. We said it this way last week. Wisdom basically, or we stated it last week this way, that for most Christians there is a disconnect. We don't connect the dots with God's truth to our lives. We have a disconnect. Well, wisdom is now living and it's connecting the dots. It's connecting the dots of God's truth revealed in God's word, his perspective on life, and it's now connecting it to my life. That's why this series here is called Real Faith in Real Life. So now wisdom is being able to connect the dots in life. I can apply God's wisdom, God's perspective to my situation, to my life. That's wisdom. And the Bible teaches that this kind of wisdom, it is rooted in the fear of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord or reverence of God. In fact, you remember in the Old Testament, Job. Job asked that question in Job 28, 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? And he said in verse 15, it cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. He goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. He's still talking about wisdom. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. There's God's perspective. God's perspective is he sees everything that's going on in this world. He knows everything that's going on in this world, including everything in your life. That's God's perspective. And then Job concluded in verse 28, and God said to man, behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And so wisdom is now the ability to take God's perspective revealed in God's word and to apply it to your life situation. It's the ability to know God and to know his will and to do the will of God for your life. Now, this declaration of wisdom, is a, it is a constant theme that runs throughout all the Old Testament. The beginning, the root of it is rooted in the fear and reverence of God. Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool, in opposite of somebody who's wise, says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, they denied the perspective of God. But Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. And so wisdom begins with this healthy fear and reverence for God. And for Christ followers, listen, that is connected to Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Jesus is the one who has become for us wisdom from God. And so now Jesus Christ 
is the perfect expression of the wisdom of God. And if we know Jesus, listen, we are changed by his wisdom. But here's the problem. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they made fools of us all. But aren't you thankful God? God sent his son into the world to live a righteous life to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise from the dead to give us new life. And and this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are told in the scriptures that it is now able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. Saving faith does not automatically produce perfect wisdom in your life. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It's the beginning You're on the right path to it, but it doesn't automatically, the moment you get saved, mean that you got perfect wisdom on knowing how to handle life, knowing what to do, what God is doing, the decisions you need to make, especially within the trials of life. That's why Proverbs 4, 7 says, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. In other words, insight is understanding. It's seeing things from God's perspective revealed in his word. And so this is why James now comes along and says to us as believers of Jesus Christ, in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, why? Because saving faith does not guarantee us perfect wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And so right there in that verse, James gives us three reasons to go to God and ask him for wisdom. First of all, notice, because God is good. You like that? God is good. Listen, God is so good that he gives wisdom to those who ask. God, he is the ultimate source of true wisdom. And the thrust of verse 5 is that God is just waiting for us to ask for wisdom, and it will be given. And when God gives something, he gives according to his nature, who he is. And he is good. Our God is good, and so it is out of his goodness that he gives wisdom to those who ask. In fact, the Bible is full of this facet of God's character. In fact, we we get examples of this like in Acts 17.25 when it says, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Why, Why does God allow us to live? Because God is good. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, James does not say here that you need education to be wise. James is not even saying that you need experience in life to be wise. He says this, If you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives wisdom to those who ask. And notice, it's very personal. James says, let him ask, or let her ask. James does not say, let your family ask for you. Let your friends ask for you. Listen, it is true. You you do need people. We all do. We all need people in our lives who will intercede on our behalf, who will pray for us. Okay? We all need that. But James is telling us here something, that wisdom is something you must ask God for for yourself. Which means 
if you need wisdom, you don't have to come to me as your pastor. Aren't you glad about that? Which means if you need wisdom, you don't have to visit a counselor. It means if you need wisdom, you don't have to read the experts. It means if you need wisdom, you don't have to consult with family and friends. Now, having said that, I will also say at the same time, all those things are wise to do. All those things are wise to do, and oftentimes we need to do those things. But James says the wisdom you need to face life's trials is only a prayer away. God is good, and he gives wisdom to those who ask. The second reason to go to God is because he's generous. God gives wisdom generously to all Christians. Listen, God is not tight-fisted with his wisdom. He gives generously. And so it is wrong for us to view God with clenched fists that must be pried open somehow, as if we're his children. we got to try to get that quarter out of his hand, that quarter worth of wisdom, that, Lord, please give that to me. No, that's not the way our God is. Listen, his arms are outstretched, his hands are open, and he is ready to give his wisdom. His pitcher is always tilted toward his children, just waiting to pour out his wisdom into our lives as we face the trials of life. And what's interesting about this word that James uses here generously, it actually means simple or sincere. And so by using that word, James is letting us know that God's gift of wisdom, it's, it's a true gift. And here's what, what we mean by that. Because sometimes a person's generosity is not really true generosity, if you know what I mean. It's a payback for something. Or they do something for you and they expect a payback. We know know what that is. But not so with God. Listen, God gives his wisdom generously and freely with no strings attached to it. And God does not play favorites with his wisdom. James says he is generous to give his wisdom to all to all his children, to all brothers and sisters in Christ who ask him. And then the third reason to go to God is because he's gracious. God is gracious. God gives wisdom without reproach. Now, this is awesome. This is so good here. Because it's possible, even easy, to give and then add a reproach to it. Now, what does that even mean? It means that God will give us wisdom without putting us down, without demeaning us. You probably know people in your life who would help you in your time of need if you asked, but they are the last people you go to them and ask for help because you know of the lecture you would hear when you asked for their help. Yes, I'll help you cut down the bushes, but man, you shouldn't have waited so long to cut down those bushes. Now it's more work. Why did you wait so long to cut down those bushes? And they start lecturing to you about how you shouldn't have waited so long to cut down the bushes because now you're asking for their help. You know those kind of people. And and then with those same type of people, you would never hear the end of it after they helped you. Well, it's a good thing I came to your rescue because, man, you'd be up a creek without a paddle. You could never have gotten this done without my help. And by the way, you owe me one now. We avoid those kind of people's help. 
You see, that's giving with reproach. But God, listen, he will not rebuke you. He will not lecture you for asking him for wisdom. God is not shaking his head up in heaven saying, man, you really messed it up this time in that trial. Come on. This is just a little trial. Don't you know better by now? Don't you know how to connect the dots by now in this trial? How long have you been a believer now? Listen, you don't have to worry that God may mock you for not knowing how to face life's trials on your own. You don't have to worry that God will somehow become irritated with you because you keep asking him for more wisdom. Listen, God is good, and he gives generously to all, and he does so without reproach, without fault-finding, without condescension. Now, notice what James is doing here. He's reminding us of what we already know about God. And this is key. Remember, we learned about this last Sunday, about clinging to what you know in trials. What you know about God, his character, and what you know about his purpose for your life in the midst of that trial. And James reminds us earlier, we saw last Sunday, that is essential to persevering through trials. And so what you know is what allows you to count it all joy when you face trials. And now James, again, immediately, he's reminding us of what we know about God here as we approach him for wisdom. Because what we know matters. What we don't know matters. These are truths about God that we first discovered we first believed in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, at that moment, we realized just how good God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We realized just how generous God is in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. God's goodness and his generosity, it doesn't dry up the moment we become a Christian. It continues to flow generously. So why, why would we ever think that God would change over the years since we got saved? Listen, he loves his children. He longs to help us as he uses our trials to accomplish his good purpose in our lives. And he's eager to give us his wisdom for our trials, if we will ask. That's the key. Number two, we need to trust God for the wisdom you need. So we first need to ask God for the wisdom we need, James says. And then the next thing James says is to trust God for the wisdom you need. Now, verse 5 is a command. James commands us to ask God for the wisdom that we need in the midst of trials. And now what he does is here in verses 6 through 8, James begins to explain how to ask God for wisdom. In other words, verse 5 is this open promise every Christian here this morning can claim. If you ask, I will give. That's what God tells us. Verses 6 through 8, James begins to establish the condition now for receiving that promise that God's just made to us in verse 5. And that is, we must trust God for the wisdom that we need. Look what he says again in verses 6 through 8. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. So there's the trust factor. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then James tells us why. He is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. So here's the condition James lays out for receiving God's wisdom when we ask. First of all, God responds to the one who asks in faith. He responds to the person who asks for wisdom and faith. This faith requirement actually applies to anything and everything we ask of God in prayer. We know this because uh, Jesus said in Matthew 21, 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Hebrews eleven six reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So whatever we go to God in prayer and ask of God must be asked in faith. And James now specifies here that when you pray for wisdom, you must ask in faith. Second of all, we see the second condition here. God rejects the one who asks with doubt. So he responds to the person who asks in faith. He rejects the person, that prayer request, when they ask for wisdom, with doubt. In fact, to the one who asks with doubt, look again what James says to that person in verse 7. For that person, he must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And I just want to say, whoa, hold up right there, right? Is that not what's kind of screaming in your mind right now and in your heart? Whoa, whoa, time out, time out, James. I mean, because which Christian here, even in this room, has never had any doubts at some point in life? I mean, so is James now saying that if I have any doubts, God won't answer my prayers for wisdom? Well, I do know this. If my success in prayer, that is my own success in my own prayer life, was dependent on me having perfect faith all the time, then my prayers would be getting answered 0% of the time. Now, thankfully, this is not what James is talking about. Because there is a sense in which doubt is actually a friend of faith and not its enemy. As one pastor and author, H.B. Charles, put it, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps faith alive and awake and alert. All you have to do is go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, and the Psalms always encourage us to take our doubts and questions to God. Further, just go to the New Testament, and we find in the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus was very tender. He was always patient with people who had doubts. Doubters like even John the Baptist and that famous one who's even known by doubting, doubting Thomas. Still, we need to understand that doubt is never inherently something good. If a doubt happens to lead you to faith, Listen, it is almost always the result of of your honesty with God and your willingness to accept God's answers in his word. In other words, there comes a point in life when when all of us here, when we must be willing to, to leave our questions behind and trust God with a whole heart. This is what James is getting at when he says, Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Because here's what happens. The doubter here, in this context of James, 
he, he asked God for wisdom, but before he even finishes his prayer to God for wisdom, he's thinking in his mind, this will never work. God's not going to give me any wisdom. God doesn't care about me, doesn't love me, or otherwise he wouldn't leave me in this trial. And James says, that person, listen, who prays that way, he, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In contrast, the person of faith is a, a stable person because they look, to the, they look to God for the wisdom they need. And they know now, they know something. James has already harped on that. James says they know that God is able. They know his character. He's good and he's gracious. And that God is willing to respond to our need for wisdom. And then James really clarifies this for us when he gives this description of the doubter in verse 8. Notice again how he describes the doubter in verse 8. He says, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, James is telling us that the doubter is double-minded with divided allegiances or, or divided loyalties. And James says this way of living with divided allegiances, with divided loyalties. That way of living makes you unstable in all your ways. What's interesting is this double-minded, this term, double-minded, it is, it is unique to the book of James. In fact, Bible scholars actually believe that James coined this term, double-minded. And it literally means double-souled or even doubt-rooted in divided allegiances, or divided loyalties. And so for James, when you, when you understand that context and understand his further description in verse 8, James is cluing us into what he means here. You see, for James, being double-minded, it isn't so much about having uncertainty in a trial. Rather, it has to do with divided allegiances in your life and so think of it this way, double-mindedness is the opposite of total devotion to the Lord. A double-minded person is insincere in their claim to, to know God and to trust God because at the same time, they're wanting to hold on to their way of living, hold on to their wisdom of what they think is the best approach to their trials. They say, they will verbalize, hey, I want God's direction for my life in the midst of this trial. But in reality, all they're doing is keeping their options open. And so they waver between trusting God and trusting themselves. They waver between relying on, on God's wisdom and relying on their own wisdom or even the world's wisdom. Sam Alberry, he adds this insight in his commentary on the book of James. He writes, in other words... The doubter is someone who wants to hedge their bets two ways. They'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if anyone has a better offer. They'll check out what the Bible says, but they'll also check out what the wisdom of the world says. They don't believe God's ways will necessarily and always be the best ways. They are double-minded, trying to live in more than one direction at once. They think they can switch between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom at will and get the best of both worlds. But in reality, James says this way of living makes you unstable in all your ways. And James has already given us a description of an 
unstable person. He tells us that an unstable person, that you are like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is now the dilemma with doubt. Doubt causes seasickness. Your doubt in the midst of your trial will cause you seasickness. It's why your stomach is in knots. It's why you are stressed out over your trial. It's why you are worrying. It's why you can't sleep at night. It's the reason for a lot of things in your life in the midst of that trial, because you are seasick with doubt. And that's where a lot of Christians live, unfortunately. We have a lot of seasick Christians. The answer to that is we need to anchor ourselves to what we know to be true about God and his purpose for our lives. I don't know how many of you have ever been on a boat in the ocean. For my, my wife and I, for our 10th anniversary, we, we took a cruise with our best friends from Houston. So we were on a, a larger boat out in the Caribbean Ocean. And, uh, you know, a big boat, bigger the boat, normally the calm, you know, you can't really feel the waves a whole lot. But there was one afternoon where it got pretty, pretty brisk and windy. All of a sudden, that boat starts, you start feeling it. Woo! And it didn't take too long to see people. Ah! Ah! I mean, all of a sudden, you look around, people are just puking. They are seasick. But the most vivid image I have of this seasickness is when we were on a MAC campaign, a missions awareness campaign in 2015, and we had a team of people that uh, I was with, and uh, down to, we flew into Antigua, and we had to take a boat ride to Barbuda. And uh, in fact, my oldest son was with me on that. Randy, you were with us on that. And uh, and so, Tyler, you remember this. And in fact, Grace, you were on that trip. And so, this was not a, a cruise line boat, let me tell you. This was like, think of a, a, a charter fishing boat. It was small. It probably held about 50 people max. And with our luggage, we set out, and it's beautiful to begin with. It didn't take long before, woo! I mean, we are up and down. I look back, all of a sudden, we had about three of our team members. Oh! They're just hanging over the side of the boat, puking. Remember that, Amber? Oh, yeah, seasick. And let me tell you, we could not wait to get to dry land, stable land. Get off of that boat, get our bearings back together, reorientate ourselves on dry land and know something, anchor ourselves to something that is stable in life. That's what James is saying here. He's saying, if you want to make yourself so sick in a trial that you puke, then just allow yourself to start questioning God's character and God's purpose for your life in the trial. Start questioning if God loves you because you're in the midst of that trial. Allow yourself to start thinking that that your life is now running out of control rather than being in God's sovereign control. And if you think your life is, is out of control in the midst of that trial, trust me, that trial you're facing, it will make you so sick you will want to puke. Doubt causes seasickness. So how do you get rid of that seasick 
feeling in the midst of a trial. You anchor yourself, you tie yourself to what you know to be true about God and his never-changing love for your life. If God is God, then trust him, knowing that he is sovereign over your trials and he is using that trial to accomplish something good in your life. Listen, trust God's purpose for your life. Trust the process in the trial. Trials are the way that God is making you spiritually mature. The key issue is this. Are you putting all your trust in God in the face of that trial? Or does your true loyalty lie with the world in your own wisdom? Now, again, James is not saying that you can never have any uncertainty in your walk with the Lord. Rather, James is saying that we should have complete faith in the character of God. Even if we are uncertain about what God wants to do or how he's going to answer our prayers. You see, the doubter is the one who is wavering between trusting God and trusting themselves. It's not a question of having all the answers to your trials. But whether you are willing to trust the one who does have all the answers as you face the trials of life. In other words, it is all about real faith in real life, according to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, on your own wisdom, on your own perspective. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and He will make straight your paths. So how then do we become people of stability in the midst of trials of life? You don't allow yourself to doubt the goodness of God's character and His purpose for your life. Even, listen to me, even when you cannot see any good at the moment in that trial. Here's God's promise in the trials of life. Here's what James is telling us. If you will seek God's wisdom in your trials, God promises to give wisdom for your trials. So don't miss God's promise at the end of verse 5. This is beautiful. Look at it again with me. In verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And what does it say? The last phrase there. And it will be given him. Now, listen to me before we close, because we need to qualify that. James is not saying at the moment that we ask God for wisdom, we will experience this, this sudden flash of insight and feel as though we now know exactly what we need to do in the midst of a trial. James is not saying that. Listen, you might pray for wisdom in the heat of a trial and still feel none the wiser after praying for wisdom. Does that happen to anybody here or just me? You're in the middle of a trial, you go to God, God, give me wisdom in how to deal with this, how to handle this. Give me your perspective, Lord. I need your wisdom, your guidance, your direction. And you pray that, you're praying it relentlessly a week, two weeks, and you still feel none the wiser. And the reason is because we, we've convoluted 
what we think is wisdom and understanding and answers in life. And that's, there's a difference between receiving wisdom and feeling wise. If we seek God's wisdom in our trials, God promises to give wisdom, not answers. That's what we want, isn't it? We pray to God, give me answers. Because that's what we all want in the midst of a trial. God, give me answers, tell me what to do. But God wants us simply to trust him, listen to this, day by day, moment by moment in the midst of your trial. He does not give you the answers a week out sometimes, a month out, six months out. That's not how God operates. He gives you wisdom for that day. In other words, God's wisdom, it will direct us into the decisions we need to make in the heat of the trial. As H.B. Charles puts, and I love what he says here, listen to his description. He says, God's wisdom is not a spiritual navigation system with turn-by-turn directions. It's a spiritual alertness to see the potholes in the road or the guy that darts in front of you and respond in a way that does not ruin your Christian witness, dishonor the Lord, or discourage other believers. So again, God's wisdom will direct us in the decisions we need to make in the heat of the trial. We may not feel any more confident, but God promises to protect us from our own folly, our own foolishness as we trust him and lean not on our own understanding. That's what James is getting at here. So when you face the trials of life, here's what to pray. It's right there at the bottom of your notes. Thank God for his unwavering character and purpose for your life. Ask God for wisdom in the trial and grace to persevere. Ask God to help you to hold on to what you know to be true. So let's go to God in prayer. In fact, let's put that into practice right now. Because I know there are some of you that are in the middle of a trial and you need wisdom. So why not right now ask God for wisdom? Pray those three things to God right here. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for the practicality of this passage. We pray that in our trials we will see our need for wisdom and we will turn to you and not from you. Help us, Lord. Give us the grace to simply hold on to what we know is true about who you are, your character, and how much you love us. And give us the grace to persevere in the trials of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.